change will not come if we wait for some other person or if we wait for some other time. We are the ones that we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. That is a quote by President Barack Obama. Welcome to Trina Talk. This is the podcast where guests share their stories of pursuing their passions, living a fulfilled life, and empowering others. Each week, I talk with inspiring leaders, business owners, and people with amazing stories from around the world in unscripted conversations as they share their successes and failures. This podcast is all about empowering you to keep striving in your personal and professional life. I am your host, Trina L. Martin. Welcome to episode 147. The topic of this week's episode is Restore and Revitalize. My guest this week is Storm Cunningham. Storm is an author, former Green Beret scuba medic, and executive director of Reconomics Institute, the Society of Revitalization and Resilience Professionals which help ensure that communities worldwide have certified revitalization and resilience facilitators. Hi, Storm. Welcome to Trina Talk. Hey, thanks for having me on your show, Trina. Thank you for being here with me. Um, I am so excited to speak with you. You're doing some amazing things and actually things that I think I'm going to learn a lot from as well as the listeners So before I start, usually how I start off the interviews is I always ask my guests to tell the listeners who you are and how you came to be the storm that you are today. (laughs) All right. Well, um, boy, as you can probably tell from the image here, that's a long story. (laughs) So uh, let me just get started with the uh, portion that uh, relates to what I currently do, which is focused on basically restoring the planet and revitalizing our communities, which got started on a full-time basis back in 2002 when my first book, The Restoration Economy, came out. And uh, it picked up when my second book, Rewealth, came out from McGraw-Hill in 2008 and uh, really kicked into high speed last year when uh, my third book, Reconomics, came out and I launched Reconomics Institute, which is certifying people to become revitalization and resilience facilitators uh, where they basically fill in the big missing gap in community revitalization efforts that causes most of them to fail. Wow. Okay. So you said a lot of stuff that I'm pretty sure the listeners are going to be like, what is that? (laughs) So societal society revitalization and resilience Break that down exactly. What does that mean? I have an idea and I, I, I think I know, but I don't want to say something that's incorrect. So go ahead and just tell us how, what that exactly means. Sure. Um, well, revitalization really uh, varies according to a particular community. I mean, in some places, you know, it, in general, it just means bringing a, back, bringing a place back to or a thing back to vibrance and health uh, from a state of being less so. Uh, But how it takes form in communities depends on what their primary problems are. In some communities, uh, it's environmental justice. You know, people are just uh, 
suffering from pollution and various other uh, uh, things that Im impair their health or their quality of life or their economic opportunities. Uh, in some places, it's recovering from bad planning, where planners rammed highways through the middle of neighborhoods decades ago, and uh, they separated, you know, fragmented the neighborhoods so they can no longer function effectively. And now people are living next to a noisy urban, I mean, noisy, ugly urban highway. Um, other places, you know, like mining towns and timber towns exploited all of their natural resources and that was their only source of income. So once their forests were all cut down and their mines were depleted, the community basically had no reason to exist anymore. So their revitalization is more focused on repurposing the whole community. You know, what, how, how can we come back to life in a way that's different from our old way? So it just changes, you know, some places focus on contaminated properties, some places focus on historic buildings, other places focus on the economy and jobs, other ones on social issues, you know, like safety or policing and things that uh, cause people not to want to live in a place. So revitalization takes many forms. Resilient, resilience tends to be a little more general uh, in that basically it's just the ability of a community to withstand traumas and stresses and still bounce back or bounce forward even better is, you know, not just come back to the way things were, but come back to a better place so that such traumas don't happen again. Wow. Very interesting and very necessary. So before you got into doing this, what did you do before? Oh, wow. If you go way back uh, to after high school, I spent three years as a hippie uh, hitchhiking around the world looking for truth and ended up hitchhiking across Europe and Southern Asia all the way to India and Nepal. That was back in the days when you could hitchhike across Southern Asia without stepping on landmines. And, uh, you know, it was a beautiful place back then. And uh, then after about three years of that, uh, within just a month or so of getting back to the States, uh, after three years of hippiedom, I was in uh, the Army and became a Green Beret on a scuba team. And um, that introduced me to the idea of actually being paid to do stuff that other people paid to do. Uh, where the army sent me to Key West to learn to scuba dive and thought, wow, this is pretty neat. They're paying me to learn something that other people go out of the way to pay for. And uh, that kind of spoiled me. And I decided for the rest of my life, I want to do something for a living that most people would do for fun. And so I ended up, uh, you know, traveling the world, helping places come back to life, which is about the most satisfying and exciting thing uh, I can imagine doing. Wow. Very interesting. And I'm just smiling because I, I love it. You're like different than any guest that I've ever had on. Um, <laughs> and you're in the army. I did a couple of years in the army before I went over to the Navy and that's where I retired from. Um, huh. And I'm also an advanced scuba diver. So. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So I, I understand your uh, passion there, but with all of that, I mean, what, what was the, impetus that made you look and say, you know what, I want to help revitalize the world, get communities back to where they're going. Is there one area of revitalization that you look at? Because like you were explaining, there's different um, forms and different ways, or do you look at it as a whole? And just, just, I'm just so interested in how 
How do you go about? What's your strategy? Well, it, it didn't start off being all that grand. In fact, it really didn't even start off uh, focusing on communities. My first love has always been nature, and it was actually uh, the army is getting me into scuba diving that led to my focus on restoration. In that, the back in the late '80s, there was a German scientist working in Jamaica. On restoring the coral reefs down there, and he had come up with a technology that would actually bring destroyed reefs back to life. And he needed some divers to help him install these experiments on the ocean floor. So I went down there for a week, and saw places that just a few months earlier had been totally devoid of life coming back to this vibrance and beauty and color, and you know, just uh, it it woke me up to the fact that. You know, I had always been very focused on sustainability, uh, and I suddenly and conservation, and I suddenly realized, you know, we don't have to be satisfied with simply sustaining the world the way it is. I mean, look around; this world's a mess. <laughs> you know, who wants to sustain this mess? Um, and there really aren't any pristine places left on the planet to conserve. Uh, every place needs some level of restoration, so. I, I looked at his experiments and I realized, you know, we can actually restore the damage. We can actually undo the damage we've done over the past few centuries, uh, and not just be satisfied with reducing the amount of new damage we do. And that was a real eye opener for me. And that's that experience led to that first book, The Restoration Economy. Wow. So then, my next question is, how do we do that? How do we go about restoring? all the damage we have done instead of, like you said, just trying to prevent. So it's instead of trying to mitigate something, how do we say, okay, this is what we have. Cause you know, we're not getting any more land. What, what is here is what we have. Um, how do we go about restoring that to a place where, you know, it's much better. Cause you, I know, you know, there's global warming, there's all these other things going on. How do we go, back to restoring our communities, the planet, things to really where they need to be and for us as humans to live and thrive? Well, let me put it in, uh, in terms that you as a former military person would uh, relate to. Uh, it's basically the difference between tactics and strategies. The, there's a huge number of people, millions literally, all over the world involved in the various tactics that restore places. So you've got historic building restoration experts. You've got ecosystem restoration experts. I was one of the original uh, 200 members of the Society for Ecological Restoration. Um, and you know, you've got all of these experts who are re renewing infrastructure and remediating brownfields and reviving fisheries. And But those are all basically technical disciplines. They're absolutely necessary. Nothing useful is going to happen without these technical disciplines. But where I really focus, and this is the word you used earlier, uh, was strategy. It's, it's kind of the missing element in many places is that they want to, you know, communities want to revitalize and they just focus on the tactics. They just issue RFPs and bring in experts to do projects and they might have tons of really nice projects going on in the community, but they don't really have an overall strategy to, re to revitalize the place. The big goal, the revitalization, gets lost 
in all of the little projects that contribute to revitalization. And I've been to many cities that are spending literally billions of dollars on redevelopment and renewal and revitalization projects and are still not getting the revitalization because not only don't they have a strategy, they don't, they don't have a process. Mm. I mean, every business person on the face of the earth knows that to reliably produce anything, you have to have a process. Right. doesn't matter whether you're a farmer producing crops or a manufacturer producing cars, you got to have a process. But community leaders don't seem to know that. Uh, the project process is totally missing. And like I said, it's all just stop, start, stop, start, project by project. Mm makes great sense. And it's, it's interesting because I'm listening to what you're saying and I totally get it, totally understand. And I can see that in the big city. So I live here in Houston and probably 10 years ago, whatever, they decided we need to build more freeways. Right. So, and it's still going on, but I'm thinking, you know, I always think to myself, how, how did you build, you know, Texas is like, the biggest state in the country, right? So how did you build a city without the proper infrastructure? And how are you going to create now the a proper in- infrastructure when everything is built up? So I, I totally understand your, your strategy and what you're doing. How do you, when you work with different cities, do they call you or do you go in and how do you explain to them the strategy and do you create one for them? Um, how exactly does that work? Um, I can get brought in by uh, any number of folks. Oftentimes, you know, over the last 20 years, I've mostly focused on doing public talks and lectures, workshops, that sort of thing at various kinds of conferences and summits and planning meetings. And uh, so I've known, normally worked primarily as a, an educator or trainer, you might say. Uh, I've done some consulting work, but in most cases, I try to help people understand the overall process of bringing a place back to life so they can apply it to their own particular dreams and challenges and um, situation. But the the big kind of eye-opener for me was that because I spend so much time at these conferences, and I might be brought in by a nonprofit or by a local foundation or a school, university, uh, it could be a, a city leader of some kind. I mean, it's all over the map. It's basically whoever realizes that they're kind of spinning their wheels, that you know, they're, they've got a lot of activity, but not a whole lot of results. So whoever that might be in the community, they're usually the ones who end up bringing me in for some kind of presentation. And the upside of all that was that for every presentation I did at one of these conferences, I'd usually hang around the conference and listen to at least a dozen others. Mm -hmm. And so over the last 20 years, I probably heard more stories of success and failure as regards revitalization and resilience than anyone else on the planet. So I've spent virtually my whole life in the last 20 years listening to these stories at conferences. And so I was kind of listening for the commonalities. You know, every community is different. But in many ways, every community's challenges are very similar. And their dreams, in many cases, are, are very similar. I mean, we're all humans. We, we, we've got a lot more in common with, the, with each other than we have differences, uh, even though most people tend to focus on the differences these days. So uh, it, it actually turned out when I was listening to all these stories of failure and success that 
there was basically the same things always missing in the failure stories and all the same things always present in this in the successes. And that's what became my new book, uh, Reconomics, is distilling all that down to what I consider a minimum viable process. Here are the six elements that every community, whether you're talking about a neighborhood or an entire city or a region or even a nation, you've got to have these six elements of the process. Uh, you can add to them, but you can't take away. If, you, if a process is missing a key element, it's not a process. Right. Can you tell us what the six elements are? If you send me enough money, sure. <laughs> well, I don't think I can afford you. <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah. So the six elements basically are, first of all, you've got to have an ongoing program. You've got to get out of this stop, start, stop, start, project gotcha. by project mode, have an ongoing revitalization program that's going to last beyond the current political administration. And, um, and the importance of that is that if you have an ongoing program, you have a kind of a flywheel effect. So that each success you have adds to the momentum and every year becomes easier. Every new project becomes easier because it's building on the momentum of the previous projects. So you've got to have that ongoing program. As soon as you've got that ongoing program, which could be housed in a local nonprofit or any trusted uh, community uh, institution, uh, the first action is to create a shared vision for the future. Mm -hmm. uh, and a vision basically is just a cohesive set of goals. And the, uh, every, every community seems to have a visioning session these days. It's, it's really popular. Uh, the trouble is that most communities stop there. It's a feel-good sort of thing where you say, okay, now we've got this vision. And somehow people think that because they've got a vision, it's going to revitalize them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a, revision, a vision by itself is just a daydream if you don't have a strategy for achieving it. And uh, so... The next step is to create that strategy to overcome whatever the primary obstacles are to achieving that vision. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how many community leaders don't even know what a strategy is. You know, yeah. oftentimes I'll ask a, a mayor who's just said, I'm going to, re you know, we're going to revitalize this place. And I'll, I'll say, oh, that's great. What's your strategy? <laughs> and he or she will reach up onto the bookshelf and pull down a 300 page comprehensive plan and says, here it is. And I say, no, that's that's a plan. What's your strategy? Mm -hmm. And they'll say, oh, well, yeah, okay. Our strategy is to increase our quality of life and our jobs and uh, create equitable revitalization for all. And I'll say, no, that's a vision. <laughs> What's your strategy to actually achieve that vision? And about that point, they get a little frustrated. And uh, if they're intelligent, they'll say, okay, what, what exactly is a strategy? Right. And the whole, fun the only, there's, only function of a strategy is to achieve success. It's the only reason it exists. It's your path to success. And in most cases, a strategy can be just a few sentences. Yeah. Because if it's if it's if you have to write it down, it's too long to remember. And if it's too long to remember, it's not going to influence your decisions on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Mm -hmm. And you know, in, in a battle situation, you know, when you're in the field, you got to be able to make decisions yes. that serve your strategy on the fly. Yeah. You, know, you don't have time to read a book. Yep. Yeah. So, um, you so, don't have to go so through the, all of them, but I just wanted some of the ah, key, okay. key ones, but, okay. um, that what you just said was a question. It triggered me because I wanted to know, and I think you answered it, but how many, once you are in, how many of these cities, counties, whatever that you work with have actually gotten and understood what you said, and then you could see that, okay, they're now taking the right path, or do they, like you said, get the, you know, 300 
page binder down and that's where it ends? Well, it, it is hard to break out of that planning mode uh, for most cities because elected leaders hate risk. Uh, so to them, commissioning the writing of a new plan is a surefire win for them. There's no risk of failure there. All they have to do is write a check to a planning firm and a year later they've got their plan. And now they can have a second win when they do a news conference and wave the plan around and say, we now have a plan. Mm. So again, they've got a win with no risk. The risk comes in implementing the plan. Uh, that which is why most plans just go onto the shelf, and then five or ten years later, the mayor gets back up and says, "We need to update our plan," <laughs> and the cycle starts all over again. Yeah. I call it perpetual planning syndrome. Yeah, uh, it's the thing that kills more revitalization than anything else, as people think that a plan is progress, that a plan is action. Right. Uh, you know, the plan becomes an an end unto itself, and uh, so that so yeah, it, it's been frustrating until recently because it was only just when I uh, wrote the new book, Reconomics, that I really got it distilled down to this simple minimum viable process, what I call the Reconomics process. And it's something that any community can, uh, can adopt very easily because the reason they don't have a complete process these days, most of them have several of the elements in place just from intelligence or intuition. Uh, the reason they don't have a complete one is they've never had a template before. Nobody's ever said, this is what the minimum process is. So they didn't know what they were missing. So I'm starting to see right now uh, a lot more really positive change as the shift, as, as they realize that they, they've got somewhere else to go to. You can't just say, stop relying on plans. Right. You got to give them something specific that they can focus on. And that's the process. Wow. So what do you think, or do you, do you think we're on the correct path? Do you see success coming in the future years as far as revitalization, or do you see that cycle just continuing over and over again? Do you see us getting it at all? Uh, I think it, it, what's really going to change it is if we get some federal programs that provide money for places to, to create these processes. It's, you know, people chase money, institutions chase money. So you can talk restoration all you want, but if an institution's money comes from things that are labeled sustainability, then they're just going to keep focus on reducing new damage and not focus on, on restoring old damage. Uh, so you got to provide that money stream. It's like back in the fifties and sixties, you know, everybody talks about the horrors of urban renewal uh, back then when all these low income and minority neighborhoods were demolished under this destroy it and they will come type of philosophy. And uh, it didn't happen. Places just ended up with big dead zones. And the reason they were doing it is because the federal government was offering billions of dollars of money to planners and cities and the planners were chasing the money. And they just, you know, it, it, it what wasn't even a matter of thinking. So I think the thing that will really change it, we, we can't just rely on people to becoming more intelligent or insightful or doing the right thing as long as there are all these incentives for doing the wrong thing. Mm. So we've got to start incentivizing the right things. Wow. Have you ever tried to like lobby, you know, the policymakers in DC to let them know this? Yeah, well, I'm not a lobbyist. Um, 
or go, go before uh, them or but, whatever. You know, I, yeah. I, do, I do live here. I've lived here for over a quarter of a century. So I know the workings of Capitol Hill probably better than at least people who don't live here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not really an insider. But I do get called in from time to time by folks who are working on some new bill and they need some language in there related to revitalization because it's one of the most popular political promises. Yeah. You know, when have you ever heard a politician not promise <laughs> revitalization? So the problem is that most politicians have no background in revitalization, so they don't have the qualifications to make the promise, which is why the promises almost always end up just being empty campaign promises with with no uh, results. But um, most of the stuff I get involved with on Capitol Hill is more limited uh, type stuff, you know, focused on watershed restoration or brownfields redevelopment. Um, There aren't that many big thinkers uh, who are thinking about the revitalization process itself for communities and, and the country as a whole. And when they are thinking about revitalization, they're usually just pulling a few of the usual levers, you know, tax rates and, you know, employer incentives and that, that sort of stuff, you know, they're not really thinking in a, in a process way. Yeah. So I'm hearing you say, yeah, it's a, it's a lot to be done and I don't, I don't foresee things going the way they should go, because like you said, it's a cycle. It's, you know, campaign promise is one of those things that it sounds good. You know, you get everybody on the train, but then it never goes anywhere. Yeah, there is another way to do it. And that's the way I've been focusing on since, like I said, I'm not a lobbyist um, and I don't have the money to buy politicians to get them to do the right thing. So um the the other way is simply to get the stories of success out there so that people can realize what is possible and they can realize that you can actually bring a neighborhood or a community back to life even if you're broke right now you don't have to wait for federal or state funding to come in there are things you can do right now that will increase confidence in the future of the place and that con- that increased confidence in the future will attract residents it'll attract investment it'll attract employers uh, that's that's kind of the universal goal, is to increase people's confidence that the future of a place will be better than it is now. And that will attract all the resources you need to actually make it happen. So off at the top of your head, what are some success, success stories that maybe one or two that you can like briefly touch on? Well, probably the first city I ran across that created a complete revitalization process was Chattanooga, Tennessee. The uh, and you're not old enough to remember Walter Cronkite. I am. No, <laughs> I am. Be. I'll be fifty on Sunday, and I remember Walter. Oh man! Cronkite. Yes, are you kidding me? <laughs> no, I'm not. Yeah, I thought you were in your thirties. <laughs> um, so uh, the uh, back in uh, the early seventies, Walter Cronkite got on national TV and uh, said Chattanooga is the filthiest city in the United States. And he wasn't wrong. Uh, You had to drive with your headlights on in the middle of the day. The air quality was so bad. And that was just one of their problems. I mean, they had severe racial problems, crime problems, uh, economic class problems. Uh, You know, it was very much a rich people sitting on top of the hill type of situation there. And... um, All of a sudden, after Walter Cronkite insulted the community on a national basis, they decided, okay, we're going to clean up our air. And the EPA had just been created, and they had just come out with the Clean Air Act. 
And the citizens actually worked together, cleaned up their air, became the first city to win the Clean Air Award. And that showed them that they could actually work together. For the first time, they realized we can actually work together to achieve something. And so they said, where do we go from here? And uh, they said, well, let's revitalize the whole place. Now that we've got started on the air and they put together a complete uh, revitalization process, the ongoing program, the vision, the strategy, the policies, the partnerships and, and the projects. And very quickly became a poster child of revitalization. Back in the uh, early 90s, when I first visited Chattanooga, uh, I was walking around downtown and came across a large group of Vietnamese people, and uh, they were all in suits. And uh, so we, we started talking, and it turned out they were all government officials from Vietnam who'd flown all the way to Chattanooga to see the Chattanooga miracle. Wow. Really? Yeah. So why can't... We use Chattanooga as a model for other cities. Oh, you can actually. Uh, in fact, I did a whole case study on it in that second book, Rewealth, uh, came out from McGraw Hill in 2008. Uh, it told the whole process. And the interesting thing was that the feedback I got from the folks in Chattanooga when they read that chapter was that, wow, you know, until now we didn't, we never knew how we did it <laughs> because, you know, nobody gave them a process up front. They just cobbled it together on a day-to-day -day basis based on common sense and intuition and all of that. And uh, it wasn't until I documented why it worked that they realized why it worked. And uh, so, yeah, the, the model is right there. Uh, you know, just need to uh, just need more people to actually become aware of it. Yes. Yes. So you've, talked about your three books um, in, in between here in the conversation, but you have the Reconomics Institute. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, that basically takes the key lessons of that second, uh, the third book, Reconomics, and turns it into a certification program for people who want to become revitalization and resilience facilitators. So they're the folks who can show up at a planning meeting or council, city council meeting or whatever. And when folks start talking about creating revitalization or resilience, they're the ones who are going to know what's missing. So they can, they can help plug that gap because, yeah, I mean, they don't, some of them are architects or engineers or planners or lawyers. It doesn't really matter what their basic discipline is. You know, the key thing they're learning when they get certified uh, as revitalization resilience facilitators is how to create a process that brings all of those disciplines together to create that end result. Wow. So you have already, you've done it. It's just a matter of people being aware and actually tapping into you, who is the resource, so that they could know what to do so that they can end up like a Chattanooga. Yep. It's Reconomics.org. Wow. All right. Storm, we're going to get into our questions. Are you ready? Uh -oh. <laughs> I think I hear my mother calling. Bye. No, no. <laughs> Can't get out of this one. Okay, they're easy. Have no fear. <laughs> Who or what motivates you? <sighs> well, on a, on a grand scale, like I said before, it's love of nature. I just love watching natural systems come back to life. On a selfish level, um, I had an experience in, on the beautiful island of Dominica in the Caribbean, uh, one of the most gorgeous and perfect places on the planet. And uh, I was on top of a mountain 
uh, while I was down there doing some work. And you know, I pulled over my rental car and was looking down at this gorgeous valley with the ocean in the background and got hit with this incredible wave of ecstasy where I thought, whoa, I'm earning my living here. I'm actually, here I am in absolute paradise and I'm earning money doing what I love. I mean, can life be any more perfect than this? And it was at that moment that I realized, you know, uh, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. You know, this, I want to have as many of these ecstatic experiences as possible. Wow. Oh, psych question just popped in my head. Do you still scuba dive? Yeah. Although I've been having a lot of problems with my uh, ears lately, uh, clearing for some reason. So I haven't been doing as much of it as lately. And tell you, tell you the truth, scuba diving has become rather depressing. Really? Uh, almost all the places I go back to that were favorite dive sites are dead now. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. I digress for a moment. Okay. What demotivates <laughs> you? Sorry? What demotivates you? Oh, demotivates. I don't deal with D words. I only work with re words. <laughs> um, uh, I guess uh, <laughs> being spending too much time around people who only see problems and limitations. Um, yet, uh, I, I deal with them on a regular basis, so it's not normally de devitalizing, but if I'm really deep into it and that's all the people around me are focusing on, uh, it can tend to make me feel rather hopeless about the future of that place. When was a time that something was said or done to hurt you, but it worked for your good? Well, um, I guess most recently, it was the uh, the whole COVID crisis. Uh, as I said, I spent the last 20 years as a public speaker. And then all of a sudden, uh, when COVID hit, everybody stopped having conferences. And people don't normally pay keynoters to do a Zoom talk. <laughs> so um, all of a sudden, the major part of my income just evaporated. Uh, luckily, I pivoted quickly and created Reconomics Institute and basically put everything I do online. So uh, it's worked out quite nicely. Right. What is your fear? <sighs> wow. Um, boy, that's, that's, that's hard to say. I, it's, I, I've got to honestly say it's been so long since I've felt fear. <laughs> um, I guess... Um, the biggest danger that I need to be afraid of is getting too comfortable with success, you know, cause that, that's what, that's where the rot starts. Yeah. That's a good you know, satisfaction and comfort. Yep. Is there a time when you wish you had done something that you didn't? Hmm. Uh, yeah, that describes both of my, most of my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, all, all of my biggest regrets came from things I didn't do, not from things I did do. Right. Um, so, uh, I guess, uh, the, the one that comes back to me the, uh, the most is, is really silly, but it was just a childhood bu bullying thing. I, I was always the new kid in town. I went, went to 12 different schools in my first 11 years of schooling. So I was a bully magnet. Uh, plus the fact I had an English accent at the time. I grew up in England. So that made me even more of a bully magnet. And there was one big bully who was constantly on me. And one day he challenged me in front of everybody in the gym class to, to punch him in the face. 
and uh, spent the rest of my life wishing I had because <laughs> uh, I because I backed down and always regretted it. Mm. Is there, it might be one of the reasons I became a Green Beret. <laughs> that's right. See, now you get to punch a lot of people in the face. Uh, is there a time that you wish you uh, had not done something? <sighs> um, well, I've been a lifelong motorcyclist. And I was racing my brother one day and uh, came into a really tight turn and hit the rear brake instead of the front brake and really wish I hadn't done that. Wow. Yeah, I, can, <laughs> I, I know how that came. <laughs> what is your definition of success? Uh, well, for me, it gets back to that moment in Dominica. For me, success is the joy that comes from uh, bringing joy to others when places come back to life. With everything that you're doing, how do you recharge? Motorcycling, hiking, being with my wife, Maria. Uh, she's a doctor of oriental medicine, so she's restoring me constantly. As a matter of fact, the, the name of her practice is Wellness Restoration <laughs> <laughs> at wellnessrestoration.com. So, um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, nature in general. What are you awesome at? Oh, and by the way, I should mention that what we restore restores us, and what revitalize what we revitalize revitalizes us. So basically, the way I earn my living revitalizes me. Mm, that, that's great. And what Sorry, are you awesome at? Awesome or awful? Uh, awesome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I make a pretty good pad thai. Oh, really? I, I love cooking. Oh, I didn't expect that. So that's why I asked these questions. <laughs> what do you want your legacy to be? Uh, well, if it said something on my tombstone, which I don't want since I just want to uh, biodegrade in nature some way. Uh, but um, if they were a tombstone, I would just want to, to say he left the world a better place. Great. Storm, give the listeners one motivational takeaway. Wow, I think I already did it. What we restore restores us and what we revitalize revitalizes us. So if you're feeling in any way devitalized or in need of restoration, just look around at someone or some place that's uh, got some problems and help them revitalize. Yeah. Storm, go ahead and tell the listeners how they can connect with you, your books, your website, um, if they want to join your institute, give us the whole nine yards. Uh, probably the easiest thing would just be to go to my public speaking site at stormcunningham.com. And that's got links to all my other sites, my books and reconomics.org and uh, all of them. Oh. Just stormcunningham.com. Storm, thank you for being on the show today. I, I really, I learned a lot. It was very interesting. Um, love what you're doing and just, Thank you for taking time out of your day. No, thanks, Trina. You did a great job with the interview. Oh, thank you. If you like Trina Talk Podcast, please don't forget to go out to iTunes and rate it five stars and leave a review. Also, who else in your life do you know that needs some motivation and inspiration in their life? Don't forget to share Trina Talk with them. I hope you have a great week. And remember, if you change your mindset, you can change your life. 
keep striving because success is a journey, not a destination.